A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very busy week for international summits. Last Friday, we had a really interesting summit among German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Chinese President Xi Jinping. Also, on the same day, there was a summit with Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga and U.S. President Joe Biden. Now, in that Biden summit, there was a lot of anticipation that the two leaders were going to talk about what we have framed as an alternate or alternative BRI. Now, this was an issue that Joe Biden brought up in a phone call with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson when he said, and I'm going to quote here, we should have a similar initiative pulling from the democratic states, helping those communities around the world that need help. And he was talking about building sustainable infrastructure. Now, this is not the first time that we have talked about building an alternate to the BRI from the United States. Back in 2019, during the Trump administration, on the sidelines of an ASEAN summit out here in Southeast Asia, it was up in Bangkok, in fact, uh, the United States, Japan, and Australia came up with this idea to create something called a Blue Dot Network. Now, the idea here was to resolve the challenge that there's no single globally accepted standard for sustainable infrastructure investments. And when you hear the Americans and Japanese in particular talk about their infrastructure ideas compared to the Chinese, they always come up with this idea of, quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes here, quality infrastructure. Now, the reason why I say that is because they differentiate and distinguish their infrastructure projects from Chinese infrastructure projects as presumably being of higher quality and also being more environmentally sustainable. Now, on the Blue Dot Network website, they have it buried deep on the State Department website. This is a program that really went nowhere fast. But let me read you about the Blue Dot Network because we're going to talk about it today. And this is a quote as to what it is. So I'm reading from their site. The Blue Dot Network will bring together governments, the private sector, and civil society under shared standards for global infrastructure development. Point number two, the network will certify infrastructure projects that demonstrate and uphold global infrastructure principles. That presumably is the Blue Dot. So it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Then we also have certification by the Blue Dot Network, which will serve as a globally recognized symbol of market-driven, transparent, and fin financially sustainable development projects. And they, they finish by saying, by proposing a common standard of project excellence, the Blue Dot Network will attract private capital to infrastructure projects in developing and emerging economies. Now, in the two years since that was launched, the Blue Dot Network has gone absolutely nowhere. And in that time, the Chinese have, okay, their spending on infrastructure is down, but it is still pretty much one of the major financers of global infrastructure, especially in places like Africa. Why do you think, Cobus, that the Blue Dot Network has been such a miserable failure? You know, that, that, that's an interesting 
question, and I think it has a lot to do with with simply the the kind of realities of politics in the U.S. over the last over the last two years. I don't think the Blue Dot Network, you know, kind of went nowhere necessarily because it, it's inherently, you know, kind of a flawed idea. I think it it, it was a, a victim of of the kind of, you know, the the Trump administration's tendency to announce stuff and then move on um, without particularly kind of implementing them. Um, so I, you know, so I, I'd be very interested to see whether it kind of gains more legs during under the Biden administration. But I think the the, the bigger question actually is is why why we this kind of initiative was announced now, and it happened in the context of of you know a, a whole bunch of different kind of international players are very interested in the issue of infrastructure standards at the moment. So you're seeing. Um, think tanks around the world doing a lot of work on infrastructure standard setting. Um, my my personal my think tank where you know SIA where where I'm based we're involved in two of those different projects at the same time, um, and th- there's a lot of discussion about about how infrastructure provision should be standardised across the world. And with it, this this idea of that that standardisation will also attract private capital. That's the other big thing about infrastructure provision is trying to get more private capital in involved. Um, so the idea of all of this is that that it, there will be a way of, of rolling out infrastructure that will also help to mitigate the climate crisis um, and boost development in a way that that will then, you know, kind of boost development along the lines of, of how certain kind of big players want it boosted. So that means there are Chinese ideas of how to boost it and Western ideas, you know, including Japan, kind of, you know, ways of, of, of boosting it. Um, and th- this kind of there are all all of these different um, kind of processes of standard setting are kind of like <laughs> happening at the same time and in some, some ways kind of car crashing into each other um, you know mostly also kind of driven by geopolitics so it's interesting because you bring up two divergent points here there's a geopolitical track for the blue dot network which was or part of this effort to confront China. This is the same framework that you can put the Development Finance Corporation, the revitalized U.S. Exim Bank, obviously the Clean Network, which was the effort to kind of get countries to divest from using Huawei equipment. And this was all part of the the Trump administration's global effort to confront China all over the world. So that's the geopolitical track. Then, Kobus, as you brought up, is the sustainability track, which is to really raise the quality of infrastructure to make it more environmentally sustainable. And so we're going to focus on the second track today. And because almost like the rare white rhino, an article that popped up on the radar that came out in defense of the Blue Dot Network, or at least to revitalize the effort of the Blue Dot Network, it was on the Hill website, Blue Dot, How to Raise China's Infrastructure Climate Standards. You don't see these kind of articles very often mentioning the Blue Dot Network. So I was very intrigued. It was written by Elizabeth Lossis, who's a senior fellow at Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions, and she also leads a research program on sustainable infrastructure. Elizabeth, a very good morning to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you, Eric and Kobus. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here with us. And I will say right from the beginning that in your article, you are not necessarily advocating for the blue dot per se in terms of any vested interest. You are just coming at it from the point of view of this might be an interesting vehicle to use in order to promote sustainable infrastructure development. That being said, This was not an issue that was addressed by either Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga or by President Joe Biden. You wrote your column in anticipation of the summit that took place last Friday. And in your column, the opening line was, the U.S. has recently signaled that it is ready to respond to the economic and geopolitical threats posed by China's Belt and Road Initiative. And I guess the question that I have is, is it ready, though? I mean, is the U.S. really ready to confront or to deal with this issue, simply because if it wasn't raised at the summit between the Japanese prime minister and the U.S. president, two forces that are motivated and well-funded to actually pull off an alternate BRI, then it really begs the question as to whether or not these governments are committed to that idea. Well, Eric, I certainly wasn't in the room when they were speaking, so I, I don't have a full sense of what actually was discussed, but... It wasn't in their final joint statement, is I guess where I'm coming from. Right. 
Right. But it did mention that they talked about infrastructure uh, sort of deep down in the the, uh, statement. And additionally, I can say that since I published that article just a week ago, several people have reached out to me to say that indeed there are discussions going on in various places about revitalizing and using the Blue Dot Network. Um, I, to me, and I, I think that Cobus did a wonderful job sort of setting out what the issues are. I think that whether it's the Blue Dot or some sort of resurrection of sustainable infrastructure, um, competing with China's BRI and hopefully um, getting China's BRI to step up as well and become a true green BRI. It's really a perfect storm right now. It's the moment for this to happen. And I have a sense that it actually is happening behind the scenes, but we'll find out in the coming weeks, I think. The involvement of Japan in the Blue Dot Network wasn't surprising for me, simply because, you know, J- Japan is is a big infrastructure provider around the world, and it um and it it's been kind of gunning to to position itself as as such, you know, particularly in in Southeast Asia, um and so so it's been campaigning on under this label of quality infrastructure in the G20, for example, it's it's a it's a real kind of um you know key pillar of its engagements with Africa under the TCAD platform. So you know, so so it made sense for me that Japan would would sign on to 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 the Blue Dot Network. I was wondering a little more about the the U.S.'s position there, because you know one one of the things that we frequently see from uh, when we speak with with um, with experts on U.S. Um, Africa relations is that the U.S. Has, has somewhat retreated from the international infrastructure provision game. Um, so do, do you see the, you know kind of a, how do you see this this kind of working out in the, on the U.S. side? Do, do, do do you, do you foresee that the U.S. that U.S. companies would want to step up and, and kind of move much more aggressively into this infrastructure space? Absolutely, and I think um, the key from the a very much a U.S. perspective is the America America Jobs Plan that Biden has put forward. If the U.S. does pursue an infrastructure anything close to what has been proposed, and of course that is still a big if. Part of it is really about developing the next, the n- new technologies and beefing up the industries that are going to require exporting uh, technologies, but also joining forces with countries all over the world to be able to um, bring a lot of these new low carbon technologies to essentially the world. So it's really in the U.S.'s economic interest. I think what China showed so nicely with the Belt and Road is how a really an industrial policy where you use loans and try and encourage uh, the private sector from your country to be able to advance your technologies really works, both from an economic and ge- geopolitical sense. And so I think this is actually a moment where the U.S. is going to need such an outward-facing program if they're going to be working within the U.S. to develop all this capacity. Why do you think that the U.S. has any credibility to build infrastructure in developing countries when its own infrastructure is so decrepit? I mean, if you drive on an American road, where I come from California, and there's just potholes everywhere. The bridges can't hold the traffic. The airports are old. I'm just wondering where the confidence comes from that the United States is actually capable of doing this, even if it did want to, given that it doesn't have the infrastructure companies. It imports most of the raw materials like steel and other things from China. So where does the the confidence that we could actually do something like this come on, given that we haven't really been able to maintain our own infrastructure very well? Well, I guess I'm an optimist. I think that's really... This is the big transformation that the Biden administration is is moving towards. This is the future, and we've shown time and time again that we can step up uh, when when all the pieces are properly aligned. And at the scale that that the current administration is proposing, it's possible, and they don't have to be. It's not a zero sum game. I, if you have companies that are working inside the U.S., that doesn't mean that they, other companies can't work outside the U.S. And we've got a very strong 
research uh, industry that is working on the next technologies coming down the road. And that's really where a lot of this will be coming from, us remaining at the forefront of innovation and pushing it both in the U.S. and outside. So it is true. I mean, you're absolutely right. We've been ignoring our infrastructure for decades, really a half a century. And so this is the moment. But the important thing is that if you also have to put this in the context of of the administration's very strong push right now for a real climate solution. And if they are successful getting the rest of the world to increase their climate commitments, and yet at the same time we don't move forward on infrastructure, there are other countries, China being the top of the list, that are going to just move into those markets, whether it's electric vehicles or hydrogen fuels or solar panels and wind turbines, et cetera. They're already there. And if we push everyone to commit further, there's just going to be that much more demand. The U.S. really has to push forward if we're not going to be left behind. But the United States and China together produce 40% of all the carbon emissions in the world. Rather than focus on other countries, why not focus on improving efficiency of American cars and focus domestically rather than internationally, simply because right now the problem is the United States and China. It's not Botswana. Well, that, that's true. And, and that is what the main focus is, not just on the U.S. and uh, China, but the other big emitters as well. But that's not enough. Uh, there was an interesting article a couple of years ago by uh, Majun and also Simon Zedek that pointed out for the BRI countries, not China, but the 126 BRI countries, if they continue on the same path they're going with infrastructure and um, very carbon intensive infrastructures and the rest of the world, the US, China, the EU, et cetera, were to move on to meeting their Paris climate targets, we would still get close to three, maybe even four degrees of warming because these countries are growing their carbon emissions quite quickly. And so it has to be an all-in. Every country is ultimately, by 2050, going to have to to um, move on to a, a low-carbon economy if we're really going to be able to... Um, keep to one and a half to two degrees of warming. To return to the to the Blue Dot Network itself, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the standard setting aspect of it. Like, where, you do, do we know so far kind of, you know, which which kind of partners are involved in the standard setting? How is it going to work? How is it, how, how the standards are going to be enforced? Just as the ter- per illustration, I mean, you know, China is facing a lot of heat for for um, for funding coal-powered electricity plants in in the global south and several of them in Africa. And 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 for on our side, we've been like hitting China a lot on the on that issue, but it was in, I, I read it, uh, a New York Times account of of this recent um, uh, summit between between the U.S. and Japan, and and, and in the last paragraph, it, it it just very briefly mentioned that that the U.S. one one of the the the, the points at, at, of discussion was that the U.S. was trying to get Japan to stop for, um, funding coal powered uh, power plants around the world, and Japan refused to commit to that. So how you know kind of when when there's so little agreement. Actually, between between even between Western and you know kind of and you know kind of democratic kind of international powers who, on the you know on the face of it, would seem to be on the same page on these issues, but in reality, frequently are not. Um, how, how are we going to? How are they going to be herding these cats? You know, kind of in one direction in, in getting a kind of a unified standard setting in, in action. That's a great question, and let me answer it sort of in in uh, two parts. The first is globally, and then second, specifically to the Blue Dot Network and its partners. Globally, uh, you were, Kobus, right on when saying there are all these efforts across the world. It's not that we don't know how to build sustainable infrastructure or what it should include. It's, It's getting everyone to agree on a standard and then helping those 
local governments, government agencies, engineers, contractors, financiers understand what it is. And right now, they're just uh, a huge number of different efforts going on trying to do that. So what role would the Blue Dot Network play? My understanding, and you know, remember that I'm coming in from the outside, so I don't have any uh, inside understanding of what's really happening, but I believe that in 2019 when it was announced and for the first year or so they tried to come up with their own standards and it just pretty much stalled out. So I don't think at this point there really are a particular set of standards that the Blue Dot Network is approaching, nor do I think they should be the ones to to figure that out because there are quite a few groups. I think that one of the efforts the World Bank is leading with um, a bunch of partners, but HSBC is a big, uh, one of their biggest partners is called Fast Infra, which would be a labeling system for essentially the financial industry to understand what is sustainable infrastructure. That might be something. The trick would be not so much for the Blue Network to spend time figuring this out, but to they could help if we got the governments at the highest level to referee, help sort of put their finger on the scale and try and get agreement as to which which that standard should be and then promote it. And it, it could be promoted as the blue dot or it doesn't have to be under that name, but it's really just getting it out there, but also to those who actually would need it to understand what it is and what it entails. Now, back to the other part of the question, and this is where it gets interesting about how are we going to get these countries like Japan that has been a major exporter of coal to get on board on something which would require them to stop exporting and also uh, ideally reduce their own dependence? Well, I think to me that's the beauty of this Blue Dot Network. The U.S. is essentially um, partnering with two of the countries, Australia and Japan, that have been laggards in this field. They're not partnering with the EU or even South Korea, which has a bit of a mixed uh, situation. But they've picked two countries which are a bit slow but are very eager to join with the U.S. to to have a united front against China. And both Australia and Japan seem to be showing that they would be willing to, they, they want to get on board. They're also being pressured internally. Uh, and so if the U.S. and John Kerry with Joe Biden can really get them on board and get them to agree no more coal plus all these other standards that would be that would really be huge and it would be very easy to bring the EU and many of the other developed world countries as well as the multilateral development banks and others along uh, i'm i'm just i'm having a hard time getting my head around this that the united states is the number 1 oil and gas producer in the world today. So I'm presuming that if we're going to ask the Australians to stop exporting coal and the Japanese to stop importing coal, that that the, the same demands would be placed on the United States to cut back on its petroleum business, which is a non-starter in U.S. domestic politics, given that a lot of the petroleum does come out of red states, which you can see where that would lead us. At the end of the day, concessions have to be made. And it doesn't seem like that the United States or any of the the wealthy countries, Japan, Australia, pick your country, has ever made a concession that fundamentally inconveniences the constituencies of those people. Like the Americans have never had to give up anything for the environment, right? I can't think of one thing. I mean, we feel we feel that it's our right to drive a V8, a gas guzzler with one person in it, no public transportation, all of that. And we're and all of this depends on us making tremendous changes to our lifestyle. And here I am in a country like Vietnam, which is on the other end of that spectrum. We are not only now 
the on the recipient of the impact of climate change, where just a small adjustment in the pH level of the Mekong Delta can affect the rice production for hundreds of millions of people who depend on that food supply. And at the same time, a lot of the manufacturing is coming down from China, so the air quality is getting worse, and they're building massive amounts of infrastructure using some Chinese infrastructure, some Japanese. So it's really an intersection of all these different things. I guess my question is, everything you've talked about is aspirational, that the hopefully one day the Americans will do this, hopefully one day the Australians will do this, but we don't have time for that aspiration given the fact that these climate emergencies are happening right now. Is this actually reasonable in an environment in a 50-50 Senate where maybe in a year and a half the House turns back to the Republicans, Joe Biden doesn't have the mandate that he has? Is this actually possible to do? Well, I think we'll find out on Friday uh, when Biden hosts his uh, Climate Leaders Summit what the U.S. is really going to offer. They're going to be announcing their 2030, revised 2030 targets. And um, you're absolutely right that they're really banking on the um, sort of the pull rather than the push, the idea that uh, renewables are getting much cheaper and they're cleaner and they're, uh, they have all sorts of other um, positive elements which will make them attractive for infrastructure development and economic recovery, et cetera, rather than trying to focus on weaning us from fossil fuels. But there's definitely going to be some of that, some of the latter in this. There's not going to be carbon taxes. That's pretty much off the table at this point in the U.S. we're talking about. But it's pretty clear that regulations are going to start to be amped up. There's going to be a lot of uh, focus on places that have managed to do some good work, such as California has actually really been in the lead, et cetera. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And if the U.S. can't step up, doesn't do anything, even with this 50 50 Congress, then, you know, we are fried, as one might say. We really just don't have that much time. But there is a lot of energy. And there's also, I can tell you that um, a lot of the people in the administration, the political folks, came from the Obama administration, a huge number. And as, uh, as one person told me, they are, they sort of have PTSD is to seeing what happened to all the work they did at the end of that eight years and how quickly it was erased. So they are working right now like there is no tomorrow. They see the midterms as the end point to when they can get all these policies underway. And we'll see. But they are, there is an effort underway to really put our house in order. And, um, I'm I'm hopeful. I have to be. It's very intriguing for me, from you know, kind of watching watching all of these developments from the outside. That that this um, that the Biden administration went ahead and and, and mentioned these you know the, these kind of massive domestic kind of initiatives, at the same time as raising possible massive international developments, you know, initiatives. Um, in in order to 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 counter the BRI, um, and and it seems you know obviously America is an extremely rich country, but like but but you know it, it also seemed politically difficult to maybe to 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 you know to um, to kind of you know to get to get all of that money released or all of that money kind of like allocated you know for both of these kind of initiatives at the same time. It, you know, would would it be um, correct to think of of something like the Blue Dot Network as part of 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 a kind of a, a way of kind of kickstarting it domestically and then hoping that domestic that domestic kind of standard setting development and technological kind of advancement will then kind of trickle out internationally or am I misreading it to my knowledge they're not that far along and remember they're still hiring up people particularly in the state department uh, it's still pretty early in the administration so I I don't know that they're that far along that they have a plan of doing the Blue Dot Network domestic 
and then going international. I think it's always been considered a global standard, not uh, for focus in the U.S. In fact, one of the things that it's, uh, I often hear it, it um, compared to is the energy star ratings that we, that have been so successful so, for so long in the U.S. on appliances um, that, that will show someone when they look at an appliance how much it's going to cost them in energy costs over time and how clean it is. Uh, so I'm not sure that they're looking to replace, to have that so much for U.S. infrastructure as a global standard, which could, of course, still be used in the U.S., yeah, well, you know, kind of that to just just to, to further along that point, like that that is something that I was wondering about in the past. You know, about because so much so much of the current sta- international conversation about standard setting on infrastructure is driven by by the US and Europe um, and Japan. Uh, you know, m- many of whom are very con- cons- you know very concerned about how much money China is kind of rolling out internationally in infrastructure, and and at the same time, kind of facing for many of them, it's kind of politically unfeasible to to just simply announce, you know, also a, a kind of a trillion dollar kind of rollout internationally. So I was wondering whether all of the energy put on on standard setting was, was uh, is actually translates into trying to have a kind of a voice and an influence in this international movement without necessarily having to pay that much for it. Because, you know, standard setting obviously is, you know, is, is cheaper than, you know, to, to announce a list of standards and to have a certification system um, is, is much cheaper than actually rolling out all that infrastructure oneself. Um, is that, do you think that's fair? Well, I, <laughs> my guess is that that might have crossed the mind of the Trump folks when they first put this out there. But it is a real need. And, you know, in, in many ways it is, you can think of it as the evolution of the international development banks that um, in the late 80s, 90s, they were really being pummeled uh, internationally for all their bad loans, many of which were environmental. Many of them were large-scale infrastructure loans that had very bad environmental and social damages. And that's what led to the safeguards being adopted and now are uh, quite extensive in all the big banks. And uh, you could see this as sort of a further development of that, it, it's needed to have such standards and um, certification. It's not enough. You, you then need the investments and you also need the investments to use these standards. But it, it is a, a first and important step. When I hear you talk about innovation, technology, research, sustainability, clean, what comes to mind is that's expensive, that's a luxury. Countries like here in Vietnam or in many African countries will look at dirtier energy and dirtier infrastructure because it's more cost efficient. And then the, the, the trade-off comes between, do we then take on more debt? Because even a 15% premium for cleaner energy means 15% more that the constituents of that country have to pay back. So there's a debt sustainability issue that comes into the picture then at that point too. So either more debt or more expensive, but it doesn't seem like all this clean energy and these clean technologies are cheaper than the dirtier ones. Sure, they're coming down in price. Solar's coming down in price, but it's not where coal is today. And for a lot of countries, it's not a choice between solar and coal. It's between coal and nothing. Eric, I I might, sorry to interrupt you. I, I think I might disagree with you. I think solar is now officially, the like solar and wind, I think is now officially cheaper than coal. Um, you know, I, I think I think for, for where, where it kind of becomes muddled, um, and sorry, not, not to mess up your question, but but the, where it becomes muddled is that for a lot of, of global South countries, they have coal reserves, you know, so they, they so so from their, their individual perspective, it's frequently cheaper. But I think objectively, what, what I've heard recently is that solar and wind is now officially che- the cheapest form of energy. There's, there's a bunch of different components in that. So for example, example, here in, in Vietnam, I'll use that as an example, they've been able to generate a lot more electricity using solar, but the distribution and storage is very expensive and very complicated, yes. and that yes, they haven't been able to do. Yeah. So we're talking about the whole ecosystem that goes to the consumer. 
not just the generation of it, which is one piece. You're right. Solar panels are cheap, generating electricity from the sun, much cheaper. But storing it, distributing it, and all the other pieces of it and building into the network, they haven't been able to do in this developing country and I think a lot of other developing countries. So I guess, Elizabeth, how do you balance that question of clean versus cost? Yeah, well, I agree that that solar and clean energy is is coming down. It is a country-by-country basis exactly what the the cost and benefit trade-off is, whether it's actually less expensive than fossil fuel. But it's it's going down and it will get cheaper. Part of... uh, at the end of the day, there are a lot of additional costs, such as pollution, which these countries are having to pay either now or later. And um, there are it, it, we're, a lot of what we've talked about today are, of course, uh, private sector money or money through Exxon Banks, the U.S. Um, development International Development Finance Corporation, et cetera. A lot of these are loans, but there's also money available for countries, particularly the lowest income countries that are uh, more concessional or grants. And so at some level, some of these countries really are going to need assistance, not just more investments and loans, but actually will need grants to help them be able to, to transfer. And there is a big green climate fund, and there are other initiatives underway to help these countries with that translation. But it's, it is a global problem, and so it does need a global solution, including some sort of transfer from developed countries to developing countries that isn't just on a loan basis. But I, do, I just don't see the political appetite in any developed country to build infrastructure in poor countries. It's an on-starter in the UK, in the US. I mean, I can see Tucker Carlson right now on Fox News going, why the hell are we building you know, highways in Botswana when our own highways here suck? But in order to justify that transfer of wealth, you're going to have to have an enormous reservoir of political will, which in Europe right now doesn't seem like it's there, nor does it seem like it's in the US. Right, and that's why the package has to include the U.S. engaged in promoting its own technologies, its own EV cars, charging stations, solar panels, etc. It has to, for these countries to be able to sell it politically, they need to be involved in actually uh, getting out there. It, It has to be a much bigger package, and that's what they're trying to wrap all together right now with the climate summit and with um, pushing back against China with the potentially the Blue Dot Network or, or other efforts. I mean, we, you can see all this, of course, with telecommunications and Huawei. We won't, that's a different matter, but it's kind of a similar sort of situation where it's a competition for who is going to be the ones producing the technology, producing the jobs both at home and abroad. Well, you know, this is what I was kind of aiming at with my previous question about whether whether there's going to be some form of spillover, because it seems to me much easier to sell kind of green jobs, you know, kind of massive, massive kind of move towards sustainable energy, um, you know, mass new forms of, of public mass transit and so on. If it's if it's benefiting Americans and and giving Americans jobs and boosting American companies domestically, you know, so so th- that made me wonder like what the kind of timeline is for the international part of this, you know, kind of whether it would it would need to first be kind of rolled out domestically to, to have the kind of both both the kind of profit and but particularly the, the, the kind of political feasibility to then be able to kind of move internationally. Right. And and a place like the US or Japan, if we can also say and look, by the way, this is helping our um, global competition with China. This is by us investing in these areas, we're actually pushing back against China. That that helps with the calculus as well. It feels like that's always part of the calculus. And even in your column, it was hard to tell if the motivation for the blue dot was as much about pushing back about China as it was about building sustainable infrastructure. Can you separate these two? Or are they linked inexorably with one another? 
I think it's a perfect storm. I don't think, I, for the, all the reasons you all are putting forward, pushing one or the other is tough. It's, but putting them together helps. And this might be the moment. This, just, this moment in time may be just the moment to push them both together. Yeah, it, it seems to me, you know, it's, it's it's interesting for me that that this kind of international rollout is characterized increasingly, you know, by by members of the Quad particularly as as being the democracies of the world versus the the big non the one particular big non democracy. Um, because you know, it, it it seems to me that climate change, in a lot of ways, is, is it represents a kind of a existential challenge to to the two democracies as we know them now, not, not least because they've shown themselves to be so easy to manipulate. You know, like the you know the the, the research. Um, you know that that came out a few years ago that that the George H W Bush administration was moving quite steadily in in the direction of of you know of, of climate mitigation measures measures that would really have helped you know the the global warming problem massively, and that it ended up then being diverted away from that um, due to, among others, to corporate pressure, but also also because, you know, um, Western democracies have shown to be incredibly easy to manipulate in terms of just by pumping corporate money into into kind of fostering culture wars you know so so it's 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 become very very easy relatively easy to you know to 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 kind of to hold back this kind of progress simply by by funding more and more kind of controversy around it and and kind of and, and in the process kind of hijacking the conversation you know to a place where where you know where, where it becomes very difficult to, to think of any kind of common good how do you think the u.s is going to overcome that particular challenge oh boy that's that's really a tough one um and I, I can say not only is w- what you just said true, but all of that effort uh, to demonize climate science in the U.S. actually spilled over into Australia and created a similar response um, in part due to the Murdoch empire in Australia. But so it, it went well beyond just the U.S. shores. Well, we've, we've hit a point where... Um, we're going to find out if uh, a administration committed to addressing this issue, even at some cost, is able to make headway. And it's taken us up to this point when we could have addressed this many, many times over the last 25 years at, at a far less cost. If we can't do it now and, you know, I understand what you said, it being such a, a close Congress, Senate in the U.S., it's going to be tough. But um, this, is, this is the moment to find out if, if democracy can, uh, can address such an existential threat, which is uh, a, a major public good, a clean, clean healthy earth versus these parties. But it does help that the private sector, which is now really getting on board, uh, because many of them see this not just because they believe it's the right thing to do, but they see this as in their, uh, their economic future. And so, yes, you still have some elements of the fossil fuel industry pushing back, but they're smaller and quieter as you see strong push forward in many other sectors. And so, you know, frankly, the private sector has been pushing climate for even before the Trump administration much faster than the government has. And that may be the answer, for better or for worse, that that's what we're going to need to have happen in order to move move forward. In your column, and we'll, we'll close out our discussion on this theme, in your column, again, you had two tracks. You're talking about sustainable infrastructure and also China as well. You've talked about the urgency of the moment and that time is in fact running out. If the Biden administration is unable to do this, and that presumes then that you know, Republican may come back into power in the future, what are the consequences and what does that say about the environment and also China? 
Well, I mean, obviously one consequence is if if we can't control emissions in the next, uh, by 2030, if we can't really get a handle on it, then there will be huge environmental costs, which I think we've already begun to see through the sea level rise and forest fires and flooding, et cetera. So I'm, I'm not going to go into what are the costs of not being able to control this. But from a more, um, I guess, political point of view, we, we don't know what China's going to do. As you said, China, the Belt and Road Initiative has been curtailed quite a bit, even before COVID. Uh, and the... President Xi has been um, very enthusiastic about a green BRI. It just has not translated. There's a huge disconnect between what the party says and what happens on the ground. But as they begin to ramp up, it will be very interesting to see what approach China takes. It looks like they are moving away from some of this really big, heavy uh, infrastructure projects that they'll probably be funding much less of that, much more on um, digital infrastructure and also what they're calling the health BRI. Maybe China will um, shift one other interesting little piece that doesn't get mentioned is that another piece of sustainability, which we really haven't talked about, is a lot of the ecosystem services that the planet uh, produces, including conserving plants and animals and all of biodiversity. And China is hosting a a big convention of the parties, COP, on biodiversity in October, a month before the big climate COP in Glasgow, which is getting all the attention. And this was the biodiversity COP in Kunming was already... um, delayed several times because of COVID. And initially, China was all in on this biodiversity convention, conference of the parties. It's just kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit because of all the focus on the pandemic. But I think this is also a big moment for China, and they want to make it a a big deal. If you noticed, it was in the readout from the meetings with John Kerry it was mentioned as an important upcoming event. And so it's possible. I I hope on this program you spend a little time focusing also on this Kunming Biodiversity Cup that's coming up because it could be an opportunity for um, some important advances as well, pushed by the world, but particularly by China. Yeah, we will do a lot over the summer. We have a number of programs planned in the run-up to the COP Summit in Uh, Kunming coming up in October. The article is Blue Dot, How to Raise China's Infrastructure Climate Standards. It raises all of these thorny, complex issues about China, sustainability, infrastructure, even touches on U.S. politics, written by Elizabeth Lossis, a senior fellow at Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions and leads a research program on sustainable infrastructure. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us and provoking all of these questions, these hard questions. I have to tell you, I'm very, very excited that you're an optimist. <laughs> that really, we need more optimism right now. So I thank you for that. All right. Well, well, thank you both for having me. It was a real pleasure. Kobus, it's so refreshing to hear that articulation of what the United States should be doing, because we don't actually hear it that often. In many instances, especially over the past four or five years, it's been rolling back everything. So to see this proactive effort underway by the Biden administration and people like Elizabeth is refreshing. The part that I can't get my head around is that in order to get these policies over the finish line in Washington, it has to have the word China stamped on the front of it, right? In order to be confronting China, challenging China's malign influence, all of those kind of key words. This is about China. But at the same time, we also hear from people that says, well, we need to work together. It needs to be a collaborative effort where the world has to come together. Those two are completely in opposition to one another because we can't make this about being in confrontation with China and then at the same time saying, well, it has to be in cooperation with the world working as as one. How does that work? Well, we're seeing that contradiction, I think, in in the current 
discussions between the US and China um, on on climate. Um, and you know we've we've seen some kind of some noises coming from from the, those discussions that that they are actually interested in working together on these issues, even though they are in opposition to many other issues. And and this kind of contradiction of well, we're against what they're doing in Xinjiang, but we want to work with them on climate. That that is coming through, you know. And and I think both sides are probably by now hopefully spooked enough by by the kind of coming climate crisis that they would be willing to find some kind of space for compromise. No, 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 no. I don't see anybody in the United States besides the those who are already converted spooked on this. Again, I come back to the point of view that Americans are not going to compromise their way of life for the for the climate on any societal level. There's no concession being made on cutting back consumerism, eating less meat, driving less, all of the things that we know we should be doing. That's not happening. In fact, in China, it's the same thing. Beef consumption's going up. Consumerism is going up. Just look at 11-11, Singles Day. We've talked about that. 30, 40, 50 billion dollars of consumption in a single day. I don't think these societies are spooked enough about climate change. Well, you you know, I, I agree with you that no that no one is, is concerned enough about climate change. As you one one should always be more concerned about climate change. But at the same time, sure, like I, I see what you mean. You know, kind of I, I but at the same time, you know, kind of we we're we're about to in in a month or so we're heading back into Californian fire season. You know, kind of California may well be burning down five hundred times this this year. Um, you know, we, we're seeing kind of moves in, in Florida, for example, like big, complicated discussions about what to do with sea level rise in places like Miami. Um, and so on. So, you know, I, th- I think slowly but surely, one, for example, is seeing American insurance companies starting to, to, to you know, to, to, to move towards, towards factoring, cli- you know, climate change issues into, the, into their premiums a, a lot more comprehensively. So even though the culture itself is... is forever seems forever willing to kind of to to have a fight about this you know u.s companies are 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 moving in a direction um and i think you know kind of generally where u.s companies go the culture slowly follows it right not necessarily you know we're in a very polarized environment right now and we're seeing this play out in georgia over the the question of the rollback of voter rights and voter suppression in georgia and some companies are going some way and some companies are going the other way But, you know, coming back to this idea that the United States is going to mount an enormous multinational effort to confront China on infrastructure, I'm skeptical only because when was the last time that the United States did anything big in the world? I mean, the last big thing that I think that they did was the Iraq war. And that's not inspiring, to be honest with you. But the last time we've done a big program was maybe PEPFAR that I can think of. But we, we don't do big things anymore. That's just not who we are. Bear in mind, it has been 15 years, more than a decade and a half since the United States ratified a treaty in the Senate. 15 years we haven't ratified a single treaty in the Senate. I just don't know how in a society as polarized and bitterly divided as the United States is today, where there is Tucker Carlson, who is sitting there breathing down the neck of the president and the Democrats to make sure that anything that they do that he doesn't like, they hear about and mobilize the 75, 76, 77 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump. So if the idea of us mounting a real meaningful challenge requires a whole of society, whole of government approach, no way. No way that the Americans can pull that off in the current environment. So, also not to do think like you, you know, so for example, you know, kind of once once China kind of becomes the the largest economy in the world, you think that that kind of of kind of like generational shock might might kind of move them forward. I don't know. We can't agree on anything, and if we can't agree on anything, I mean, you look at the politics of the United States right now, and it's all about just scoring the cheapest point you can score. These are big, giant geopolitical issues that require some type of uniformity in the body politic to confront China and and massive amount of resources. So if the Blue Dot Network is not backed by enormous amounts of money, which it probably won't, and it's just a standard setting type of thing where you get a blue dot if you make a clean piece of infrastructure, I don't think anybody in Vietnam is going to care about that. I don't think they're going to give two poops about it. They're going to say, who can deliver a piece of infrastructure at the lowest cost and the fastest pace? Now, bear something in mind here, Cobus. 
When I first got here in Vietnam in 2012, Sumitomo and Mitsubishi were both starting to build the Ho Chi Minh City subway. 2012, they'd started ripping up the streets. We're 2021, almost a decade later, and one line is not yet done. (laughs) It is really, really hard to build infrastructure in the developing world. We talk about it as if, you know, we can do a challenge to China and we can build infrastructure. We don't have any experience building infrastructure in the developing world. We don't have a China Road and Bridge Corporation. We don't have a CCECC. Companies with managers who have decades of experience now in working in some of the toughest environments in the world building infrastructure. We as a society just don't have that talent. The Chinese have it now. These guys who I met back in Kinshasa in 2009 and 2010 have been in the business for more than a decade building infrastructure in some of the most difficult places in the world. I don't know where the Americans are suddenly going to find that talent who knows how to build a road in Mozambique. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is, when the rubber hits the road, it's hard. It is hard. It is, it is definitely hard. But, uh, but you know, kind of that, that kind of infrastructure isn't the only thing at stake, right? Like simply, simply having, for example, you know, I, th- I think this kind of standard setting, um, if, if led by the U.S., if say the, say the U.S. Like gives, gives a kind of a, you know, like rolls out the blue dot network, it, you know, kind of it, it, it adds its kind of like full, full weight behind it. Then what what will hopefully happen, and I think this is this is obviously best case scenario, but in that case it it, it becomes a kind of a environmental arms race, right? Kind of like who 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 can be greener, um, and in, I can see how you know it, this that might have zero impact on on something like like road provision, but it could have a big impact on on electrification, for example, right? Like so 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 it, it does, if 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 certain if certain kind of sectors are affected by this kind of initiative by this kind of standard setting, then okay you know kind of then 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 that's already a step forward but what powers the arms race most arms races are powered by fear fear of either being killed by the next guy or being outgunned by the next guy and that you're presumed to be weaker where's the motivation i mean again if it's talking about climate change and that we're all going to die from rising water and desertification we all know that today and we've seen that that is not enough of a motivation to propel people to act. So what is the motivation between that green arms race? Well, it's two things. One, one I think, is is that sure, we, we knew that thing those things theoretically, right? But we don't we didn't feel them. And now we're feeling them. Like, you know, we we're speaking literally on a day when you know the, the University of Cape Town just its its library just burned down, right? Um, massive tragedy. It's 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 the world's the world the world's biggest kind of repository of 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 rare African film that's gone up in flames. It's, it's, and it's one of the world's biggest kind of repositories of of rare documents on on Southern Africa have gone up. Um, it's it's horrifying. Um, it's it's literally a generational loss. Like we we you know this time a hundred years from now we'll still be suffering from that loss, um, and that's just uh, you know one little moment in the wider kind of climate change story. Um, so so I think I think even if you know it was it might have been easy to to dismiss you know these kind of dangers before, but it's going to become less and less easy. So you know so so there, there is going to be more and more pressure I think from the world at large, um, and at the same time you know it's so much. <laughs> So much for of of kind of Western democracy's own self conception is running on on them being number one at everything in the world, you know, um, and even you know you know so so in that sense, you know, again, like if 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 standard setting kind of kicks off some kind of some kind of arms race between them in order to to just be better, then okay. You know, um, like that, that, that kind of nationalism, that kind of Cold War kind of thinking, you know, kind of if, if, it, if, if it, it, it spurs that kind of competition, then, then it might be worth it. I don't know. I get really annoyed every time I hear this conversation and the burden gets put on developing countries to somehow make concessions when people in wealthy countries continue to consume incredible amounts of just crap eat vast amounts of meat without any concern, drive as much as they want, have air conditioners in 3,000 square foot homes just blasting without a regard. And until the concessions are made in the quality of life and the day-to-day existence of people in the wealthy countries, 
I'm not going to believe that anything's going to happen. That is where, that's the indicator for me. Because to put the burden on the Vietnamese family, who is already choking on the air because the factories making the stuff that's sold in Target and Walmart and the Apple iPhone components, that doesn't seem reasonable. And putting the burden on Africans either doesn't seem reasonable either. Well, no, I, I thousand percent agree. But like, but at the same time, this is why these rich societies. This is one of the, one of their their values, right? Is that they that they manage to to articulate new forms of the good life, um, which then which is then exportable. So I agree with you. Like, for example, meat consumption in the U.S. off the charts, right? Kind of says really, really problematic. However, at the same time, the U.S. is also the now the world center for you know for for um, for plant based meats, milk all kinds of other other forms of, of kind of new kind of revolutionary forms of food right and again like you know kind of the, these industries have their own big problems a lot of them are not sustainable yet um, but the fact is that they are being rolled out um, and the place where they're being rolled out is the US so you know so 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 there is there is uh, even as the US is extremely problematic in, in in lots of these ways it is also extremely innovative in other ways and and I think you know the the, the balance always the problem always with the U.S. is how to balance those two things, right? Um, and particularly how to how to hook those two things onto ways of self-identifying in order to kind of move them forward as a as a kind of as as a as a market rollout. Um, and but the thing is with the U.S., the the, the its weird superpower is that it has a, a, a real talent in mobilizing this kind of identity-driven consumption. You know, so so again, in that sense. Who knows? You know, kind of like we, we like, like veganism itself is becoming this kind of American, you know, kind of way of being, right? So, so there is, I think, potential for you know for for this for to kind of to to work with the culture in in producing these things and then kind of you're popularizing them and rolling them out. I just don't know if we have enough time. Well, work with half of the American culture because red state America does not exactly. believe in any of that stuff. So blue state but, America but does. But the, the half of American culture is still more powerful than Fair almost enough. all of the other Fair countries enough. in the world. And I love your, your optimism and faith in American culture, but it does actually end up coming <laughs> down to whether or not we have enough time. Elizabeth puts the time frame almost in months, not years, when she talks about how we have the midterm elections coming up and if the Democrats lose the House. And again, the way that 43 American states have been rolling back and adjusting their voting laws to make it more difficult to vote so that it engineers an election of a Republican president. And if a Republican president comes into power, one has to think that there's no hope that this will happen. That being said, the Republicans are very aggressive on China. So maybe they pick it up and then they go down the path with the China attitude. But we're not going to be working together as one as one happy world at that point. I'm not entirely sure that the John Kerry visit to China was genuine in terms of supporting the environment. Whereas you know that when China has these big international events, like the Olympics or the COP summit coming up in Kunming, they will make all sorts of concessions to make the events a success. So my reading of the Kerry visit to Shanghai was that the Chinese were blowing rainbows up Kerry's booty in order to make sure the COP summit goes smoothly. That was my reading of it, not necessarily because they really want to work together with the United States. The depth of anger and hostility and frustration from the Chinese towards the Americans only matches the depth of the anger, frustration, and hostility of the Americans towards the Chinese. You simply cannot call a country a genocidal country and then expect to have a collaborative, cooperative, happy-go-lucky working relationship. It's just that doesn't happen. So I'm not sure how these two countries, which do together produce 40% of the carbon emissions, and we have to work with these two countries alone to bring the climate issue under control, are going to actually work together. Yeah, that's a big question. I, I just can't see it in the current environment. I just can't see I it. Think so. the, I think the one thing I would say is that, the, you know, if like if like projecting 20 years down the line, like whoever is a global leader at that stage, there's no global leadership without some kind of global environmental leadership. I think that ship has sailed now. You know, there, there's no way that, that anyone can claim any form of like coherent, real, global, kind of big global influence without also having a, a significant kind of environmental aspect to that. That leadership, um, and and I think you know, and I think that 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 field is shifting in that direction. I don't believe that for a second. We could not have anticipated that Bolsonaro, Donald Trump, all of the populists who won 
would be like that. And there's no reason to think that the populists are going to go away in the next 20 years. But they're not leaders. Science like, kind denying. Of they, like no one, no one thinks of Bolsonaro as a leader, even in Brazil. You know, so so it's well, like he's you know, it's, president it's of the country. So I mean, how many? I mean, and and again, we have failed in a task. I mean, just look at at human morality and how we've distributed the vaccines to fight a pandemic where the threat is immediate. It's not something 10 years down the road. And even there, we can't see the bigger picture to solve the global good. I mean, if the pandemic was a test for us, we have failed as a, as, as a species. That, that was what I was saying like this time last year. Um, in, in retrospect, I now don't know that I'd, Hundred percent agree with myself. Like, like I, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, kind of the like in lots of ways, this has been a shambles, right? But at the same time, and 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 a very revealing one in the sense that the people who got hit hardest were the people who were also the most vulnerable, like like globally and and domestically in many countries. But at the same time, we, you know, kind of it's a year in we have several viable vaccines, you know? So, so, so in, in terms of if, if one reads COVID just simply as a story of whether human technology can deal with a sudden, sudden massive crisis, then I think the answer is yes. Yeah, several vaccines that are going to the rich people first. So, and, and, and you know, 2% of the world's vaccines have made it to Africa. Yeah, but they're going places. You know, they, they are being rolled out. Not in any meaningful numbers right now to roll back the vaccines. And there hasn't been a concerted effort in that sense. 2% of the world's vaccines have landed in Africa. 2%. So, and, and again, six to seven times the amount of vaccines that have been needed have been bought up by the wealthy countries. So, I mean, it's just, it's, I think we have a very difficult time as a species to, to be forward thinking like that. So I, I'm, you've got me in a very kind of skeptical mood here today, Kobus. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope I haven't left everybody on a downer, but here we go. Uh, we will be covering the COP summit quite a bit over the summer. It's going to be a very important summit. It's going to be obviously from the geopolitics, from the Chinese side, but also because these issues and these sustainability issues are critical to understanding the China-Africa relationship and China's engagement with the global south. It's going to be a key part, I think, of FOCAC as well, given that the COP summit will come around the same time as FOCAC. We don't know exactly when the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit will happen, but it will probably be this fall. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of the themes from the COP summit do make their way into the FOCAC dialogue as well. So we'll keep our eye on that. Uh, we could go on for this conversation for a lot longer. We're going to have people like Elizabeth back on the show again to kind of talk about these issues because they do intersect you know, between the sustainability issues, which are so important to think about, especially now that Chinese policy bank funding for infrastructure is declining, and at the same time, this effort by democracies to confront and challenge China. So we'll be talking about that a lot more in part because Africa and other global South countries seem to be caught in the middle of a lot of this. These are the issues every single day that Copus and I discuss in our daily email newsletter that goes out to senior level stakeholders around the world. We would love to have you part of our growing uh, audience of readers Sign up today, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It will make you smarter about what China is doing in the global south. It is the only daily digest of everything going on in China, in Africa, the Americas, Arabia, uh, Asia. We're putting a little smattering of it all with Africa at the core of it, though. So that's really what's so very important. If you sign up today, we'll throw 20% off if you use the podcast, the, the promo code podcast. And also make sure that you can try it out for 30 days for free. See if you like it. Cancel anytime. No obligation whatsoever. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with, a, with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com. Mm-hmm.